0: Welcome to Carnegie Politica Podcast. My name is Alexander Gabuev. I'm director of Carnegie Russia-Eurasia Center in Berlin and the host. The war is approaching its sad second anniversary, and we've been all surprised about many things. First of all, that this war is even possible. But there are many surprises that continue to unfold. One of the major miracles and unexplained realities is the remarkable resilience of the Russian economy. When the West has introduced sanctions against Russia immediately after the full-blown onslaught on Ukrainian territory, the hope was that the sanctions will attach costs to Russia's behavior, but at the same time will be also able to stop flow of materials and money to Putin's war chest and impact the Kremlin's decision. So probably it would stop the war, but it never materialized. So today we're gonna talk about why that happened and how is Putin's war economy doing going into 2024? What should we expect? And we have a terrific guest to help us unpack this reality, my colleague Alexander Prokopenka, who is non-resident scholar at Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center, and she's also working for SOIS and German Council on Foreign Relations. And before the war, she has been senior advisor at Bank of Russia, Russian Central Bank, and had a journalistic career working as the Kremlin reporter for multiple Russian publications, including State. back then, a very reputed business newspaper. Very warm welcome, Alexander.
1: Hello, Sasha. Very nice to hear you. Very nice to meet you here.
0: Well, before you left Russia, you've been employed by the central bank, which seems to be the ivory tower or the castle of competence inside the Russian bureaucracy. All the time that I'm discussing Russian politics with Western interlocutors, my main point is that if you're looking for team A inside the Russian bureaucracy, don't look at the Russian military, don't look at the Russian intelligence, look at the central bank. That's where the most competent people are employed. You were among one of the few officials who resigned and left the country. Not that many of your peers, be it in the central bank or in other ministries, have followed the same trajectory. And they've stayed, and probably the fact that these competent people are still working for the Russian government is one of the secret sources of the remarkable resilience of the Russian economy. How do you explain why many of the Russian bureaucrats chose to stay, though we know from conversations that we are having that many of them don't approve Putin's war?
1: Well, as you said, central bankers are the most competent part of Russian bureaucracy, as part of Russian public services, we can call that. You're absolutely correct that, unfortunately, not so many people who serves in the public sector resigned and left Russia. But there are multiple reasons behind that. First, I need to say that that's the personal choice. I've done my own personal choice. That's my career, my destiny, my life. I'm not judging people who stay there, who are those who left, or Even people who turned their attitude and who was quite neutral to the authorities, to Putin's regime, and now they are fully supporting what's going on. And uh, I was very sad, actually, to know that. But speaking about the system in a whole, I need to admit that besides personal career, people on public service and in public service everywhere, I mean, in the US, here in Europe, in other countries, people also make a moral career. If we will speak about Russian moral career, I would say that excessive reflection and moral to moral, if you are in the system, is rather a disadvantage as it prevents you from focusing on the results why Russian bureaucrats are so effective. They are very focused on results. And secret source of being effective here is efficacy and loyalty. And I would say that when people are entering the public service in Russia, they know that they should make various moral compromises. But every such compromise was perceived by these people as a necessity in order to continue their careers, to maintain their position, to improve their status, to be useful, or in simple words, to remain effective. That's a very important ingredient of uh, the recipe why they're stayed. And the second very important part is that no one from top bureaucrats resigned and left. And there is also multiple reasons behind that. One of them is simply the fear. People are afraid of being prosecuted or detained, or someone from their team can be followed by Secret Service. People are intimidated by FSB. All of them, I mean, Nabiulina, Siluanov, Rishetnikov, Mishustin, all of them remain. People on the lower floors, when they see that they're chiefs are still in the position, they also copying these kind of behavior. And it's also very important that sanctions, personal sanctions, I mean, playing their role because lots of people now included in the sanctions list just simply because they are working in the Russian public sector or because of their position, they need to be at Putin's meeting and there is no way out of sanctions. So people have been frustrated and I think that anti-Western sentiment is growing, which is also good for Putin, bad for the West and it doesn't play on the Ukrainian side and for the sake of the victory.
0: I also know a couple of stories where working for Russian bureaucracy on uh, topics that are vegetarian, that are very far removed from the war, like climate change or digital governance, is really a kiss of death. So, this track record of being employed by the Russian state makes people unemployable even if they choose to leave Russia. And that definitely serves as a warning to everybody else in the Russian bureaucracy, whether they should abandon their posts and uh, seek employment somewhere else, that oh, people will be not employable anywhere in the global economy because of this track record. And I definitely can understand the fear, given how many mysterious Incidents when people are falling out their windows in protected hospitals and so on are happening uninvestigated. Maybe some of them are real suicides. Maybe some of them are real accidents. Who knows? But who knows? It's true. But I think that the competence of the Russian bureaucracy, the central bankers, is one ingredient. But the resilience of the Russian economy could not be explained by just the quality of human capital. If you don't have a robust, resilient economy, or if there are no other factors, I don't think that the genius can turn it around and make the economy work the way Russian economy has worked. So, how do you explain the fact that now in the second year of war, after all of the sanctions possible happening over the course of the last 18 months, the Russian economy is in growth territory, like Putin predicts 3.5% growth, IMF predicts 2.2%, but Correct. It's, still, it's still growth amid all of the sanctions possible. How do we explain that?
1: So first of all, Sasha, let's go back to February 2022 and see in what shape was Russian economy just before the war. It's very important to keep in mind that it was in a very good shape. It was recovery after a pandemic, and GDP in the first quarter was growing at 3.5%. Citizens' wages, credit mortgages were rising. The population was tired of the coronavirus and spending aggressively, so domestic demand had very good figures, and tourism and transport were recovering. Unemployment was at historically low levels, and I think we'll come back to this figure later, but the main external risks for Russia were considered to be tightening monetary policy by developed countries. Because of inflation, that would have spillover effects on the Russian economy, on the economy of emerging countries, and possible new strains of coronavirus unprovoked full-scale invasion of Ukraine very fast turned this bright picture into the black one. But here, we need to stand and look precisely on what Russian financial authorities done. First of all, they were prepared to sanctions. Russian government and presidential staff and Russian state businesses, corporates, they run stress tests, but of course, no one expected uh, that the West will play with its best cards with the first sanctions package. So what was done by Finmin and Central Bank in response? They simply put Russian economy into an artificial coma because Central Bank raised the key rate to 20%. They also imposed a temporary capital control and they forced exporters to sell export revenues and they prohibited non-residents to leave the Russian market. This was done in response of reserve freezing And here we need to admit that from the Western point of view, it was very effective symbolic gesture and symbolic measure to freeze Russian reserves. But actually, if you're doing inflation targeting, you don't need excessive reserves of the central bank because you have a floating exchange rate and it's adjusted itself to the fluctuations. You can use reserves to flatter the volatility, but basically you don't need them. So all these actions of Russian financial management was very timely, was very bold, and they allowed Russian economy to sustain and combined with excessive revenues from oil and gas, because as we remember, the West stopped by Russian oil and gas very late because there was a global concern over growing prices and possible distortions on the energy market. This combination of factors allow Russian economy to sustain 2023 and gave time to Putin, to government, to Russian business to adjust its strategies to turn into new markets. Here I mean mostly China and India, but we also need to keep in mind that Turkey buys a lot of Russian energy resources. Countries from Eastern Europe are importing a lot. The year of 2022, was well, the year of adjustment into sanctions. And in year 2023, we saw the results of this adjustment policies with combination of exceeding military spending. Now we're coming to the end of 2023 when Russian economy shows pretty bright figures, but behind them, it's overheating of the economy, which basically means the deduction from the future. Let's take
0: a step back. I totally agree with you that 2022 was still an abnormal year Russia for most of the year has enjoyed windfall profits from still being able to sell uh, hydrocarbons to Western markets. Russia turned off the tap on natural gas in late summer. The oil embargo was introduced only in December. So Russia really pocketed a lot of Petra euros and gas euros in 2022, and then the adjustment and was dollars unfolding. And
1: also dollars.
0: That's true. And yuanes. And pounds. But early this year, in 2023, you remember that the Russian budget went into deficit with a lot of military expenditures, most likely. The figures on Russian budget expenditures were really alarming. Towards end of this year, we see that the budget deficit is what? Around 1% GDP or like there are figures that are not that alarming at all. Why is that? What has happened?
1: It's quite easy to answer. So, at the beginning of 2023, we witnessed advances which Russian government made for enterprises, for industry, mostly who served a military and the front line, but also the construction industry. So, they use advances on their business advanced, models. Advance
0: payments were made.
1: Advance payments. yeah. I mean, advance payment. It was very unusual the way how Russia distributed the budget money within the economy. So in previous years, most part of spending went in the fourth quarter, not in the first one. It was quite new, and this put Russia watchers to the position when they started to predict huge numbers of deficits and uh, other bad stuff for Russian economy. But then we see that the pace of state expenditures within a year flattered, and I think... In the middle of the year, we saw that Russia became able to circumvent oil price cap and oil sanctions, that Russian exporters adjusted their strategies and get the huge shadow fleet, and uh, they are able to carry oil to its customers and don't care about the price cap, which also improved Russian incomes from oil and gas. And now we witness how Russian deficit would be It will exceed a little bit, I think, 1%. And we don't know the whole expenditures Russia will try to make in this December. I need to remind that in 2022, there was a huge payment to social fund. That's a fund, a combined uh, pension fund, social fund. Probably they can consider to do something this year. Probably some payments to the population can be expected in December. Because Putin ran the elections in 2024, this combination of factors bring the economy to the point where we are, and uh, in terms of figures, it's quite good.
0: Russia has just passed a new budget where uh, nearly 40% of expenditures are military expenditures and expenditures related to internal security. For the first time, Russia is spending about 6% of GDP on defense since collapse of the Soviet Union. This is a huge number. How do you explain the priorities for the budget? Like, what is the budget telling us about what Putin wants to spend money on? And how sustainable is this new budget construction? Can Russia afford this military defense spending?
1: Oh, well, yeah. We need to admit that first time in Russian modern history, military expenditures exceeded social spending social spending next year, planned less than 5% GDP, military expenditures, and uh, that's only defense ministry's budget alone, will amount 10.8 trillion rubles, which is as you correctly said, 6% GDP. But I would recommend uh, to combine this spending with uh, expenditures on national security which are exceeding 3.5 trillion, and this is now about 8% of GDP Russia is going to spend on social called sileniks this is combined budget of ministry of defense Rosgvardiya, fsb penitentiary system and it is a lot we never witnessed that and in projections on uh, 2025 which i don't believe yet i think russian Finmen will revise them significantly we don't see these the numbers it is important to understand what is within military expenditures And here we see about from two to three times growth of purchases of weapons and military equipment. Inflation on arms and military equipment, which is, as I calculated, was about 20%. It's quite correlated with the prices of industrial manufacturers. Payments to personnel, which are growing, and payments to wounded and families of uh, the dead. All this is uh, 10.8 trillion rubles, which is, as I said, a lot. The priorities of the budget on 2024 is uh, continuing a war with Ukraine, national security. I wouldn't say social spending, but I need to say that there is also four so-called new regions, the annexed territories, which Russia is going to develop. And in 2023, the head of Rosfin Monitoring, Yuri Chehanshin, that's Russian Financial Intelligence, revealed the numbers that they spend 1.7 trillion rubles, which approximately $17 billion on these annexed territories. I think that they will continue spending there. That's the priorities. Are they sustainable, you ask? It is a very good question because on the budget there is a very bold assumption of high oil prices. They predict that brand oil price would be approximately eighty five dollars per barrel, the average oil price I mean. This means that Euros price would be approximately seventy dollars per barrel. They also predict economic growth, so the economy itself will produce taxes and uh, they will collect them and will finance war and social spending. It's also very important to keep in mind that Russian financial ministry financing military and social spending from what they get from non-oil and gas revenues. They predict very low inflation, which I don't believe with the 22% of expenditures growth, it cannot be combined with 4.5% inflation at the end of 2024. There are a bubble on the mortgage in construction, with which Russian financial authorities need to deal somehow in 2024. I would say if the situation will remain relatively the same, I mean, so the sanctions pressure would remain the same as it is now. The oil prices would be the same. Putin will pass 2024 with resources he has. Because sanctions isolated Russian economy from most external shocks. If something happens on the side of oil prices, or for instance, economic success usually come to Russian authorities with some vortex. So they will decide to make some unexpected Spending on whatever. This also can bring some distortions to the current design of budget and of the economy performance.
0: What about the labor market? I would assume that given uh, the outflow of workforce as a result of uh, people's exodus, like nearly 500,000 people have relocated out of Russia, and like some of them are competent, well-educated workforce, but also there is a big pool to go to the front lines because of the cash outs and the payments that the government is making, and also the demand uh, for workforce in the military industry. Russia should have a labor shortage given its demographic situation. How is the government addressing that?
1: I don't think that government have a lot of options uh, to addressing that. They know about the problem, they regret, but they cannot attract migrants in a necessary amount to fulfill vacancies for multiple reasons. Because migrants usually are low-qualified workers and people are afraid that they can be moved to the front line and they don't want to go there. And in their countries, they can be prosecuted for serving in this war. Second, they cannot hire migrants migrants to this expanded military industry complex because uh, non-Russian citizens are not allowed to work on this kind of industry. The only way how Russian business is addressing this program, they are raising wages. These growing salaries need to attract people, for instance, to remain at the industry. Basically, in terms of individual, the situation is quite favorable to workers, to people, because they feel themselves quite confident. I wouldn't say that they feel themselves confident in tomorrow because they're spending money and we see a boom in uh, consumer spending people saving not so much. They buy new cars, they buy apartments, they do renovations just because they have no confidence in tomorrow. That's their strategy to improve their well-being. But in terms of economy, labor shortages, it is a limitation of future growth. The same limitation is export revenues, which are not growing. There is nothing for Russian government to do with that. They don't have much options. And of course, war take young and capable men, young and capable workers. I wouldn't exaggerate the importance of the brain drain because it's only 500,000 people and partly they are still employed on Russian companies, but combined with everything and combined with expanded military industry complex, which attracts people from civil sectors, I would say that situation is quite bad and not balanced.
0: To finish this up, you drove a picture that is sustainable and that uh, most likely gives Vladimir Putin resources to continue this war definitely in the next year without major disruptions, but probably for two or three years, like the resources will be there. Help me understand what kind of long-term problems will this current policy generate for the economy? What kind of dilemmas are your former colleagues and other capable managers of the Russian economic bloc facing going forward in the three, four, five years' time?
1: First of all, there is no planning on three, four or five years in Russia. Their timeline horizon is quite low. And if someone can predict what happens at the end of 2024, I would say that uh, probably this person is a liar and no one knows. <laughs> Because a lot depends on what's going on at the front line and how the situation will go there. That's also making all predictions very shaken, very weak. I see that Putin is now trying to solve the trilemma. You need to continue war spending because around military expenditures, I would say that economy is on the war needle. And the current pace of GDP is mostly because of these war expenditures, which basically means that once Russian state stops spending on the war, the growth stop, war will slow significantly. You need to maintain this kind of expenditures which are non-productive and they bring inflation to economy. and central bank need to keep interest rates high for longer. The next year, key rate would be double digit, and it's also a sign that economy is not healthy. If you have a healthy economy and moderate and sustainable growth, you don't need a double digit key rate. You don't need such costly money within the economy. That's the first thing Putin needs to solve. The second one, it's very important to maintain that everything is going according the plan, the reciprocal contract with the population that he's still delivering the war. It's not the war, the global one, but it's still special military operation and people can continue to do their life as usual, business as usual. And the third, of course, is macroeconomic stability. Some decisions imposing capital controls or breaking budgetary rule, which was not only about saving extra revenues from oil and gas, but also it limited government spending Abandoning these institutions means that uh, in the future, it would be more complicated for financial leadership, for Kremlin and for Putin to sustain with the future shocks, while economy constantly meets different shocks. So at the moment, the economy looks resilient, but it's like Putin navigates its ship, its economy, his yacht, but doing it the way that it's an icebreaker. Uh, it's not
0: you said that whoever makes a prediction of what will happen in Russia towards the next year is most likely not knowing what he's talking about because there are so many moving pieces and the situation is so dynamic. So we should reconnect sometime towards the end of next year to compare notes and see what has happened. I'm very grateful for your time, Alexandra.
1: Thank you, Sasha. Thank you for having me here. My pleasure.